The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ray, also one of the pastors here in the church. It's good to see you all this morning. We're in a series on Psalms, and um, as we journey through this, um, we are reminded that uh, this time of year we're in, it's a, it's a tough time for many folks, and the Psalms invite us into a journey. So I trust that as we uh, spend some time briefly in Psalm 73, it is a long one, that's why I got Mark to read it so well. Thank you, Mark, for reading it, um, just so that you could get context of it. We live in a world, friends, today where it's so easy to compare our lives to others, isn't it? So we take out our phones in the morning, we look at how it's going with somebody else's life, uh, when we compare ourselves um, to other people. And it's in this comparison that sometimes, you know, things are good, we find out about how people are doing, how people are going, and uh, we, we, we see their lives, we see their lives clearly, but we also get into a space where we can compare and, and get into a space where we become unhappy with our lives. Uh, if I had to ask you the question this morning, which scenario would make you more happy? Um, you can pick one of these two scenarios. If you uh, went to your five-year school reunion, so imagine you've, you've gone to your reunion after five years at school. You can go to the next slide, Micah, thank you. If you've gone to your, your five-year reunion and um, you know, you're, you're finding about, out about your friends and what they've done, um, this is scenario one. You find out you're earning $100,000 a year and your friends are earning $50,000 a year. Scenario one. Scenario two is you uh, are earning $100,000 a year, but you find your friends are earning $200,000 a year. Which one of those would make you more happy? Probably the first, the, the, the first scenario where you're earning more than your friends are. But even though you're earning less in what you would have earned in the second scenario. It's often our comparisons to others that make us unhappy in life. True, and this is what we call the unhappiness trap. When we compare ourselves to others, it leads to unhappiness. And in the case of those who follow Jesus, who, who have a faith, it often leads to doubt. Doubt about yourself, doubt about God. Doubt if God is actually interested in your life or not compared to others. We're going to see in this psalm, as Athanasius said back in the 4th century, he said, in the psalms you find depicted in all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures, and its recoveries. So how do we go with doubt and unhappiness? Psalm 73, as the title says, it's written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was quite an important dude. He wrote quite a few psalms. He wrote 12 psalms. But more importantly, he was from a very important family. He was a Levite, descended from, from a Jacob, one of the 12 tribes. And the Levites were given the job of, of leading worship in the temple. And Asaph was one of those people appointed by King David to actually be in the tabernacle where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. You're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant? Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, this golden box? Uh, but it's something that Moses was told by God to, to make and, and it ended on the Ten Commandments. And it's this, this, this sense of the presence of God. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was about. And Asaph's job was to lead the people who stood in front of that and to, and to sing songs and play instruments. He had a pretty important job. And later on, in, if you read in 2 Chronicles, he was actually called a seer or a prophet. 
was something about him that God uh, had blessed him with. But yet he says this in, in Psalm 73, verse 1, the second part of it. He says, surely God is good to, the, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And this sort of goes back to Psalm 1, if you were here for that. Psalm 1 talks about this blessed life, this life where, where just if, you, if you're a good person, God will bless you. And he says, yeah, God, surely this is supposed to be how things happen. But the next part of the verse, he said, but I'm in trouble. Verse 2, he says, but as for me, this important bloke, my feet had almost slipped. There was doubt in his own mind, this important person, doubt about who he was, doubt about who God was in this moment. For I envied the arrogant. Notice he was comparing himself to others. He was comparing himself to others who seemed to be wealthy. If you read further on in the psalm, it says in verse 3, they're wealthy. In verse 4, they're healthy. Uh, they've got these sleek bodies, as, as, the, as, the, uh, as, as the Bible says. They're trouble-free. They just seem to have no troubles. And isn't that how it seems to us on, on, on Facebook and social media? When we look at that, and I'm, not all of you are into it, although the older generation are those who use Facebook the most, I've found out. But as we're looking at others' lives, we go, "Ee, they look happy. Gee, they're always on holiday, always going to some place. I spoke to a lady this morning who's come back from holiday, and we're all going, oh, we're really jealous in a, in a good way. But when you compare yourselves to others, you feel, oh, my life is not so great, and it leads to some sense of unhappiness. In verse 13, he says this. He says, and he's beginning to ask these deep questions of his life. He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. And washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's saying, I've done all these good things. But it seems like it's, there's no benefit. All day long, I've been afflicted. It's like perhaps he's ill. Or perhaps he goes home at, in the evening and his wife is, is like angry at him because he's not earning as much as the, the Jacobsons down the road. And they've got the latest chariot and we're driving this clapped out one. And so she, he's going home to punishment every night, perhaps. We're not sure. He says, every morning, it's like this just, receive, just keeps repeating itself. But I want you to notice the word in, this, in that verse right in the beginning. It says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. The word heart is used six times in this psalm. And it talks about what's going on in your life. It talks about what that sense of unhappiness or comparison is actually showing about what's going on in your heart, in his heart. And it seems like, as some folks have, have said, it seems like his loves were out of order. The priority of the things that he loved was rout. He seemed to be wanting other things above God. His heart was in the wrong place. His loves were out of order. This goes right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it, folks, where if you know the story, it's like God had given them this perfect world. But yet the, the devil comes along and tempts them and says, perhaps God is keeping something from you. You know, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And they go, hmm, perhaps God is not so good. Uh, let me eat this fruit and, and, and I'm wanting more. And their loves got out of order. And ever since we're battling with that, friends, when our loves are out of order, we expect that God will serve us and honor us because we are good. 
This is a real trap for Christians, for Christians who've been Christians for many years. We go, I've been good all my life. Surely God should bless me more than he is. Surely he's, surely I should expect more. I've done all these good things compared to my friends who are not doing good things, but they seem just to be better. But we know that when our loves are out of order, it's because we're serving something other than God. And Bob Dylan, you may not like Bob Dylan, but he said something really profound in one of his songs. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. And he was spot on. Our human hearts are designed to serve something. And the state of our hearts and the state of our happiness shows us what we're serving. It's a very good measure of it. I want to go down a little side street and talk about artificial intelligence and where we are uh, in, in, 19, in 2023 um, with artificial intelligence. And probably in many ways, artificial, 2023 is going to be known as the year where artificial intelligence really took hold in our world. Artificial intelligence uh, is, is impacting us more than we are aware of. And there's some really good things about artificial intelligence. You use it when you use Google Maps. It's, it's, getting the, it's got these algorithms which work out which is the best way for you to go based on what other people have done. They're using artificial intelligence in profound ways in the medical field. For example, I heard about this, this library they've developed of lung x-rays and of different conditions of your lung, of people's lungs. Uh, and they've got thousands of them in this database. And so when they take your x-ray, they're able to give it to the system who uses artificial intelligence and can give you a prognosis about your lung far better than most doctors can. So there's some really great things about artificial intelligence. But there are some warnings, too, that are being raised, and there's some ethic, ethical issues that are being raised. There were two books written, this is way before the age of artificial intelligence, you may have heard about them. Um, George Orwell wrote 1984, and he wrote this back in 1949, and Huxley wrote a, world, a, a book called Brave New World. Some of you may, may know what Orwell spoke about when he spoke about Big Brother, and Big Brother's watching you, and the type of world where the governments will watch you. But Huxley spoke about a different type of world, and perhaps the type of world that we're in today. And I want to read this, that this person um, said, uh, as I was listening to this book, John Lennox, he said, Orwell, uh, and, and by the way, he's quoting, um, who's the bloke he's quoting? Uh, Neil Postman. He said, Orwell was the man with the big brother, and he warned that eventually we'd be imprisoned by externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, we don't need a big brother. As he thought, people would come to love their oppressors, and to adore the technologies that actually made, take, took away the capacity to think. What all feared was those who would ban books. What Huxley feared that there would be no reason to ban books because nobody would read one. What all feared was there would be those who would deprive us of information. What Huxley feared was there would be so much information that would be given to passivity and egotism. All will fear that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. All will fear that the world would become a captive culture 
Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. And here's the point of where I'm going with this. These two books written very well, very long ago, and possibly we were in both of these worlds. In short, all will fear that what we would hate, that what we hate would ruin us. Huxley feared what we love would ruin us. And there's something about the ability of artificial intelligence friends to put things in front of us to make us passive, the things, we, the things that we love, the, the things that we, it will push them to us, it will sell things to us. They were even talking about having relational robots who would become our best friends. And there are some folks who really battle with friendships, but they're talking about having relational bots that would be the perfect companion to you, um, would be the romantic companion to you. Because, hey, every night you've got to go home to your husband, and he's a bit grouchy, he's got a different point of view to you. But this other companion that you could have will be your perfect companion. And this is starting to happen more and more, both romantically and sexually. There are concerns about what this could look like as we go on. Why am I even talking about this? Friends, in our day and age, we have the possibility, the real possibility, we will be sucked into, into chasing those things which, which we love, and so become passive in both our lives and in our faith, and face what this person, Asaph, so many years ago faced when he began to doubt God's goodness. Everyone else looks like they're having a good time, but I'm not. How did he face this? How did Asaph face this? How do we face this in this world where, where things are so fluid around us? Verse 16 and 17, he begins to show us this. He says, when I try to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He understood that those folks who were without God, that they were on a slippery slope. And our friends who are so caught up in, in this world, and we can also get caught up into it, he would suck us into a type of world without God when actually we are beginning to serve those things rather than them serving us. Verse 21, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I mean, just picture this. This is like the guy who's supposed to know what to do, right? He's leading the worship in the temple. But he said, I was like this person who was morose. I'd lost perspective on life. Somehow I was doubting God. But he realizes in verse 23, he begins to shift in his heart. And he's gone into the temple and he's realized that really, the, the person he's living for is God. And, and the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of, symbol of God's presence with his people. And that at the end of life, that's what matters. That God is with us and we are with him. And so he says in verse 23, Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you would take me into glory. What's the thing about holding with, with your right hand? I thought about that in... Somebody said that when, when, when we, the reason we shake hands normally with our right hand, in Scouts we did it with the left hand, I'm not sure why, but you shake with your right hand, it's really to show that you weren't holding a weapon. You're going, hey, I don't have a weapon, let's shake each other's hand. And when you swear and you, you raise your right hand, it's like you're not ready to you know, cut somebody's head off. You go, I'm defenseless, this is what I'm promising. So when God comes to you and he holds you by your right hand, it means he's looking at you. He's taking a hold of you. He's taking your right hand, which is a symbol of your strength and your own ability and your own, your own capability, and he's saying, 
I want to be your strength in this world. I want to take a hold of you. I want to strengthen your hand. It's like he's looking at us. He says, you'll guide me. With what you tell me, God, you'll, you'll guide me in this life that I'm in, this space that I'm in. And one day you'll take me into glory. Then he shifts onto this verse, and, and then it's a beautiful verse. He says in verse 25, Who have I in heaven but you? Notice where the love of his heart has shifted. He's going, I could fall into the trap of serving wealth, serving health. I could go into the trap of serving other idols in my life, and, and there's some good things that we can serve, like our families. They can become idols to us or sport. Good things. Here he's saying, really, at the end of the day, the only person who I should have in my heart, number one, who do I serve? It's you, God. I, there's no one else. These things I can't take with me to heaven. You've given me the right perspective on, on what's going on in my heart. And that at the end of the day, those things that I've been chasing after, the idols, they've made a slave out of me. He says, on earth, I desire nothing but you. I've realized those things are empty. How do we journey with this? We don't have a temp temple to go into to go and see the Ark of the Covenant. How do we do this as Christians now? Well, we have Jesus. And these are the songs of Jesus. These are the Psalms are probably where Jesus would have sung many of these. Jesus prayed many of these. And many of these Psalms are about him or point to him or help us understand how we get to the Father. We're drawn to the Father through this. And in many ways, Jesus faced what these, these folks hear, what the psalm is showing about people. It says they were arrogant, they were brutish. They, they, they strutted around saying, you know, we, we're just the bee's knees. And in many ways, the arrogant oppressed Jesus. Jesus was this person who didn't have it all, who wasn't great to look at, Isaiah tells us who we didn't, wouldn't have rushed after him. But he steps into this world, was tempted like you and I were. If we go and read the book of Hebrews chapter 4, let's read that together, 4, 14 to 16. It's on, 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 the, on the screen, verse 14. It says, therefore, this is about Jesus, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The next verse, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet didn't sin. Let's just pause it there. Jesus was tempted with wealth. The devil said to him, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus was tempted with, with affirmation and, and publicity. The, the devil said to him, if you just do these things, you know, jump off the, off the, off the temple and, and people will just adore you because the angels will rescue you. Why not, why not do that? Jesus was tempted in every way as we have been tempted. But he didn't sin. Then in verse 16 of Hebrews says this, Let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's like Jesus Christ. It's not like. It is. He steps forward. He grabs your hand. He says, come, let me take you. He take you into the Father's presence. Let me show you what the Father's like. 
Let me demonstrate what true love and fulfillment of life looks like. Let me show you. I've been there. And so, friends, in our world where we find ourselves in this comparison trap, where many of us are unhappy with what we have, God comes to us and says, let me show you the way forward. Let me show you how to reorder your loves. Let's undo what went wrong in Eden when our loves got out of order. Let me help you in this journey. And I believe that's why we we journey through life. That's why life for Christians isn't necessarily easy because we are learning to undo what our ancestors did. We are learning to reorder our loves, to say, actually, at the end of life, I'm choosing to love you, God, first. Not to love gaining knowledge like was promised in Eden, not to love being like God, but to love God for the sake of the relationship with God. And Jesus has come to undo all of that in himself and to help us now come back to God in a way that God has created us to be. You see, friends, when our loves are in order, in the right order, we expect that God will help us and be with us because he is good. So the psalm ends like this. It says, but for me, it's good for me to be near God. He's he's made up his mind that actually the things that other people are running after, that's just an empty trap. He says, I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your good deeds. So how do we unwind the unhappiness that you might be feeling? Well, let's reframe that this morning. Remember the goal of life in Psalm 1 was to be happy, to be blessed to have this richness of life that's not quite attainable here. So let's reframe it. Comparison, if we compare ourselves in God's presence, it leads to thankfulness and it leads to confidence. Comparison in God's presence leads to thankfulness and it leads to confidence. So it's something that we practice when we come and we sing the songs we do. and We're thankful to God. There's something that we do that undoes the unhappiness in our hearts when we're practicing thankfulness and praise. In fact, one of the best ways to become happy, by the way, they, and, and, and everybody wants to be happy in life, the best way, one of the best ways to become happy is the simple little technique of being thankful for three things every day. You sit around the dinner table. If you're really feeling unhappy, just find one thing to be thankful for and practice that for a month every night around the dinner table. What are we thankful for? What are we thankful for? You keep doing that. I guarantee you, at the end of the month, if you're desperately unhappy now, if you find one thing to be thankful for by the end of the month, you will be in a much happier space with God. Let me put up then just three quick things to do as I close. Firstly, I want you to to take technology seriously and to learn for it not to be your master. It's desperately wanting to do that. There are some very powerful algorithms and very clever thinkers who are designing it to capture your attention, to sell you something. And so I want to encourage you to take a fast from technology periodically. How do you know if you need to take a fast? Well, Ian, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? Or what's the last thing you do when you go to bed at night? If it is to look at your phone... I'm diagnosing you right now. Take a fast from technology because it grabs a hold of us. Do it once a month. Young people, take a fast from your technology. I know it's going to be super hard. 
you're going to be way ahead of your friends, both in happiness and fulfillment, if you learn for it to become your slave. Secondly, live your life, friends, in Jesus Christ and practice thankfulness every day. There's that, there's that idea of being thankful. And then thirdly, guard your heart. Friends, guard your heart as a gift to God who loves you. Because everything else you do this morning, today, will flow from your heart. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you that um, the psalm has been brutally honest with us. Um, thank you, Lord, that Asaph just said to us that he himself would have struggled. He did struggle. And Lord, this morning, if we're honest, we um, it's so easy to compare our lives to others, and we struggle. And we wonder if you're a good God. We wonder if you really know our names. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that the enemy wouldn't snatch this truth from our hearts, that you would affirm in our hearts this morning that you love us, that we love you. Take our hands, Lord, in your right hand. Strengthen us. Strengthen the moms and dads here, Lord, who are leading their children. Strengthen those in, in the business world, Lord, who are needing to make a difference where values and principles are so different. Strengthen us, Lord, in our leisure time when things are wanting to gain our attention, wanting to influence us. And they're good things. We can use them for good, but they can be used for evil. us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.